This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Beasles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans and we're back with a new season of episodes released every week, each discussing a different movie about starring or inspired by the Beatles. This week that film is George Harrison Living in the Material World, a 2011 two-time Emmy winning documentary directed by none other than Martin Scorsese. True cinephiles out there may recognise that name as someone that's somewhat regarded as a pretty good filmmaker. Through archive footage and an impressive array of talking heads, Scorsese tracks George's evolution from the quiet Beatle to genius solo songwriter and beyond, maybe even possibly achieving actual proper enlightenment at the point of his death. Who knows? Believe so, that definitely justifies the three and a half hour runtime. Uh, talking of which, so Ed, sometimes when we talk about uh, films that we discussed in the past on this podcast, we often make the point that films that try to cover an entire life or an entire career of the Beatles ends up doing it a massive disservice. And the ones that are most effective are the ones that focus on a particular period or a particular angle. This film seems to buck that trend and actually does, I feel like, a pretty good job of doing a worthy depiction of an entire man's extraordinary life. Do you agree? Yeah, I do. I think everyone shows up for it. Do you know what I mean? It's got talking heads in it who don't usually appear in things, you know, people from sort of different parts of his career. You've got people like Astrid Kirscher who doesn't, you know, who never used to do a lot of these things and she's in it and she's happy to contribute. And I think, you know, perhaps the sort of uh, the Scorsese factor, if you like, is what will have, persuaded a lot of people to get involved uh, and a lot of the people who are more used to being in these documentaries just to sort of up their game just a little bit whether they meant to or not it's very 
comprehensive, but at the same time, one of the things it does is it, it it's runtime. There's a lot of Scorsese films that are longer than you think they are. They're, I mean, they're generally narrative films, but you mm. think of things like Goodfellas or Wolf of Wall Street or Casino, like brilliant films that are very long. You know, mm. they're getting on for three hours. All of those films, um, but you don't really notice it. You know, yeah, it, it just, zips along, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And I I remember. Uh, so I, I watched this film for the first time um, a few weeks ago and watched it again today, thinking I'm not going to have a chance, I'm not going to have time for a second watch before we record this, but I absolutely did. And and didn't it didn't drag even on a second watch. So yeah. soon after the first one, it was um, it flies by, really. Do we think that the film does enough to explore all of the areas in George's life, though? And I think particularly about his spirituality is obviously a key theme of the film. Feels like there's a lot to explore there. We covered some of it as well before, haven't we? With um, Beatles in India had a key focus on that part of George's life and his friendship with Ravi Shankar. Does this film do enough to sort of cover that whole period? Do you think? Yeah, I think it does. Um, there, uh, that's obviously such a big part of his life, uh, and it's interesting as well that um, uh, you, you could make this documentary all about his music or all about his spirituality. Or you can try and do it in a rounded way, which also includes the other parts of him, like the fact that he was quite sarcastic and quite moody, and the fact that he was really into Formula One, you know, yeah. things like that. Which all of the things, as I think we said in another episode, it was such a wonderful mess of contradictions. George, like mm-hmm. lots of the Beatles were really, but uh, but George in particular um, just had all, all these things, these different facets of him, you know, competing to be the one you're most interested in you know so he's talking in it um there's a tv debate that he's taking part in and um he uh, someone uses the word mysticism to him and he kind of shoots that down pretty quickly and it's so he's very like he's pretty young at this point george and he's um very keen to get away from the idea uh, uh, that all of this you know the spiritual stuff if you like all of this is in some way uh, mystical or alien, you know, he seems to feel it quite profoundly. He seems to feel that this is something that that is within us all and can be unlocked, you know, with a certain amount of work. And I, th- you know, I think it's probably fair to say another one of the contradictions about him is, you know, he seemed to be uh, at times fairly contemptuous of people who had not done the work yeah, to sort yeah. of unlock their spiritual side. There's certainly a few of his song song lyrics are, are, are a bit like that, you know. I was really impressed with that uh, part of the film in general, just this idea, which I hadn't seen before, this footage of this, what looked to me like a a TV show that was set up as an actual televised debate about the Beatles' new interest in spirituality. And the people in the audience that answered the question that David Frost presents to them are clearly academics and intellectuals. If we're talking about a mystical religious belief, which I think that George Harrison is, because he talked about the divine laws of nature, it's not mystical. Get up, you know, get up. Well, let me just finish yes. this. Then that's one thing which I would dispute. But I would like to to ask John Anderson whether really this has got anything to do with a belief in God at all. Because if all we're talking about is a technique of self-examination, which you can perform over-shaving in the morning and then go out and help mankind more as a result of having done it, then nobody in their senses would dispute that it was a very excellent thing to do. 
Are we talking about that, or are we talking about a universe which has some hidden laws and a hidden creator who manifests himself only to people like Mr. Harrison and the Maharishi when they get into a state of trance? That's what I want to know. Well, let's face it, these laws that you say, hidden laws, they are hidden, but they're only hidden by our own ignorance. And the word mysticism is just being arrived at through people's ignorance. There's nothing mystical about it, only that you're ignorant of what that entails. And it, it just really struck me that you've got George and John on this show engaged in an intellectual debate about spirituality, feeling very comfortable and very at ease with talking about that on, on the right terms as these intellectuals yeah. you know they're not talking about the same thing necessarily they're yeah. talking about it at different levels of different approaches but they don't seem phased or insecure at all about you know the, possibly coming across as naive like they're very yeah. very confident about how they feel about this particular subject yeah definitely uh, george certainly is i think maybe yeah. john, john ever so slightly less so uh, john will sort of it, it, you can see if he feels like he's being attacked in some way will kind of deflect it with a joke or something which like is that. exactly what he does at the end of that clip yeah. yeah when when he's not completely confident in his argument then yeah. then maybe but george it will completely go for it yeah i was quite struck by that as well george seems perfectly comfortable in that situation to just make his case even if he's aware he's looking a bit silly. It reminded me a bit, you know that footage of when John Cleese and Michael Palin come out to defend life of Brian? Which is also in here, yeah. It, yeah. It very, it's very similar to me as well, yeah. In front of Mal Malcolm Muggeridge and the Bishop of wherever it is. Yeah. Uh, you keep making the basic assumption that we are ridiculing Christ and Christ's teaching, and I say that we are not. But do you imagine that your scene, for instance, of the Sermon on the Mount... The scene in this, in your your film of the Sermon on the Mount, right. is not ridiculing one of the most sublime utterances that any human being has ever spoken on this earth. Of course, it is. No, no, it's Absolutely making fun not. of the guy who's remembered it wrong and of the people who don't mm. understand it and miss mm. the point. It's sort of interesting to think that those spaces for just sort of discussing philosophy or the arts mm. even, don't even don't seem to exist really on the BBC that much anymore. You get, I mean, no, you have things like you know, on the radio, you have. Front row on Radio Four, and you used to have sort of Newsnight Review. They don't have that anymore. Mm. Where, where some people would just get on and discuss the arts, even if it was only for half an hour, or yeah, or debate ideas, you know. I but mean, I, I, I guess what I like about that, particularly the Life of Brian um, debate, is you've got a really uh, a core central comedy conceit that Michael Palin and uh, John Cleese sub subscribe to. Yeah. Which is that we are not making fun of Jesus Christ. We're making fun of the situation around Jesus Christ, and that is, and I think what what that what's interesting about that is that you you then have the opposing argument about how that undermines you know Christianity. Um, but be, because they don't see it that way, what the argument ends up becoming is the concept of comedy itself. Yeah, and I think that is something that is actually comfortably within. Michael Palin's and John Cleese's Warhouse, right? They were able yeah. to talk about that. What is funny? What isn't funny? What, where, you know, where is the line drawn? That is sort of having that conversation on their terms. And I think it's probably a similar situation with George Harrison here as spirituality. Like it's, you know, he's not necessarily seeing the uh, the intellectual argument being put forward by these academics in the uh, in the audience, but he knows what he believes. And by talking about it on his terms, like he's very comfortable doing that and he comes across quite uh, knowledgeable in that respect because yeah. he's just comfortable talking about it. Yeah, he does. And he comes across like, you know, quite, you know, I think he was often described as sort of being quite, quite an old soul 
you know, mm. and um, seemed to be sort of what you know wise beyond his years. I think the Maharishi said, you know, he knew with George like quite quickly, like, oh, this guy is on is on his last life. Yeah, this so. is his last life before his you know his his spiritual enlightenment, his uh, his you know his achieving uh, nirvana, you know. Not Nirvana, the Hindu version, whatever, yeah. <laughs> whatever they called it, you know, yeah. uh, Pearl Jam or whatever they called it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> such a cheap joke. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, you know what I liked about the film as well is that um, I got the impression that you know, you know the film is called Living in the Material World, right? Mm-hmm. And we know that a key focus of the film is always going to be George's uh, interest in spirituality. Uh, what I thought was quite interesting is that it feels like Scorsese before that even becomes a point of interest in George's story weaves in some elements of a similar kind of discussion in the footage that he uses so there is a discussion around Beatles as a religion and there was footage of like in the crowd where you basically kind of got this sort of Beatles logo set around a crucifix where you know someone's made that themselves brought it to a gig and and Mm. hung it up you have George talking about his first LSD experience, almost as like a spiritual experience. It feels like you could say that overall the film is about uh, spiritualism, even though it doesn't explicitly get mentioned until about a third of the way in. Yeah, it's just Scorsese, I think, just laying those sort of foundations for that, which I think is quite quite great. You know, this sort of sets this kind of documentary apart from many of the others that we've seen um, in in being quite clever about doing that. Yeah, sure. And, you know, and, and I suppose, you know, it's worth bearing in mind as well that sort of religion is sort of one of Scorsese, has always been one of Scorsese's great preoccupations. Yeah, that's true. You know, yeah, and, sort of, and, and, the, uh, and religious morality in a way, um, and sort of Catholic morality as well. Um, but, yeah, I mean, obviously making films like The Last Temptation of Christ and uh, Silence, you know, but I think also in like most of his films there does tend to be a sort of religious morality at play absolutely you know? yeah talking about Scorsese it, obviously that is a we'll, we'll go on to mention I guess how this documentary is set apart because you have such an accomplished filmmaker at, at the uh, at the helm I hate using that phrase but you know <laughs> <laughs> guiding the film as it were but also you mentioned earlier about Astrid Percher being one of the talking heads uh, I think it's quite obvious that you know one of the reasons why people show up to this film is because you know it's it's a Scorsese film, yeah. And it makes you know it makes me think that you know, we have Peter Jackson having done Get Back and Scorsese with this film, and I wonder if like Paul McCartney is eventually looking at what you know who's the director that will eventually do his uh, overall documentary biopic. Mm. It's like, is it Spielberg or Bust? Is it you know <laughs> like is he thinking you know that level? It's going to be Christopher Nolan doing his first like documentary <laughs> in IMAX. Oh yeah, oh yeah, in IMAX. Absolutely, yeah. All practical effects. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, he'll direct it himself. You <laughs> <laughs> will. Yeah, you're right. The script for that is going to be brilliant. Just a circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, there is quite a lot of interesting uh, talking heads in the film. I think Paul does stand out as well. And Paul and Ringo always stand out whenever they're being interviewed for a documentary, yeah. right? Yeah. I really, really enjoyed everything Paul said in this film. Yeah. And not in the way I think it was intended. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit of a theme to his... Uh... He, 
There is a bit. His contributions as a talking head in documentaries, isn't it? <laughs> like, I liked this, but not in the way he wanted me to. Um, I'll, I'll run through a quick list. Sure. Um, I enjoyed that he, uh, again, I think he said this on a um, uh, one of our documentaries that we covered, when he talks about And I Love Her, and um, and he says he he says in this film I was thinking about and I love her the other day and I was like what about the other documentary when you were about to tell the exact same anecdote yes um, but he says I was, I was thinking about that the other day and uh, you know I wrote this one but actually George came in and just like chose this riff and that is the song like you know that's that is song, that's yeah. the whole song and I was just thinking actually about my song and I love her I give her all my love I had that but then George comes in with do 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 now you think about that that's the song. You know, but he made that up on the session because he knew the chords and he just said, well, you know, we said it needs a riff. I didn't write that. Yeah. And I, I always, whenever I hear him say that documentary, I was like, yeah, it wasn't the song enough for you to give him credit, though, was it? No, right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and then uh, I love that he mentioned their school and that Charles Dickens taught at their school. And he said uh, it was a very Dickensian school. In fact, it was so Dickensian that Charles Dickens taught there, which is just not how the word Dickensian works at all. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I enjoyed him accidentally negging George whilst I think trying to be kind uh, by saying that I think it was around the sort of White Album period that he was peaking as a songwriter <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which I think it was supposed to be like a, a generous generous um, thing but yes. doesn't you know for me it comes across as laced with a little bit of cynicism yeah <laughs> uh, and possibly my favourite thing of all time was when he starts getting a bit coy about George uh, liking the ladies yeah and he says um, he starts off by saying listen I'm his mate so I can't say too much but uh, but you know he's a he's a red blooded male you know what I mean by that George, right George he's a red a blooded guy. he was you know a, I mean. he was a yeah, yeah. And like what he just stood around without a t-shirt and talking about carburetors like, <laughs> 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 oh I don't know what you mean yeah, he's uh, no, he's, he's Paul's an interesting, you know, character in these as well. I suppose when he's not talking about himself, he's a very. It's very interesting to observe how he is. I think he's much more because the other docu- the other documentary you're talking about, I think, is McCartney three two one, where he says the thing about that's the song. Sure. With and I love her. I'm pretty sure it's that. Fair. Um, and. Um, that is obviously one in which he is mainly talking about himself. But as we said in that episode, when he is talking about the other Beatles, he's very generous. So McCartney 321 was, what, 2021, I think. Yep. So, yeah, she is, yeah. So 10 years after after this documentary. And I think it's around the time of this documentary, which came out in 2011. It, it seems to be around about the time that Paul settled into his old age settled into I think perhaps his relationship with Nancy and just felt kind of secure and that kind of this is a lot of speculation but I think it kind of seems to tie in with a period where he became much more comfortable with his role in the world his place in the world I was a Beatle that's an amazing thing and I have much more perspective now on how that it wasn't just me who did all that yeah. that the others were brilliant too. Like he he would obviously always compliment the others. But you see how these days, the way he talks about John, every little interaction, he says absolutely lovely things about John. You know, I, I think uh, this says a lot about me as a person. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, I, I see it as 
um, you, you know, you're right. There, you know, and we've seen this through all the films that we've been talking about in, in this podcast. But uh, there is a point at which it seems he's, it seems as though he is less intent on trying to set the record straight. Yes, but I, uh, I very cynically feel like that is more about him realizing how he comes across when he was doing that previously. I always, I always think of Paul as someone who's very conscious of his image. Oh yeah, yeah. So I think. I, I often think that he has got to the point where he realizes when he's talking about how brilliant George is on guitar, which he does in this um, uh, in this film, and, and how brilliant John is, that ends up reflecting well on him. Yeah, that's true. As opposed to what he was doing in the sort of in the nineties, where it felt like he was being a little bit, just a little bit harder edge talking about the others, like he still had a little bit of a bone to pick or a little yes. bit of a yeah, yeah. Uh, a thing to correct. Yeah. So I I don't know. Uh, you could be right. Maybe it's him just sort of getting a little bit older and a little bit more content. Um, well, I suppose I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. I mean, to, to uh, be, apparently to I'm fair. not. <laughs> well, <laughs> really not. Well, I mean, to be fair to him, like uh, uh, like the way you frame it, he can't win. Like, you know, <laughs> no, no. Like, right. like, That's how I like it. Like either he's you know he talks like quite he's like quite selfish and self involved. Yeah. And then when he appears not to be, he's just he's just pretend, he's just trying to hide being selfish and self involved. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So, yeah. Fair enough. I have him pegged. Closed. <laughs> he's never going to come onto this show. Is he? <laughs> I think it's unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> But it's interesting because, um, you know, talking about you know him being kind, uh, this is the first time when when I was watching him talk about George as a guitarist, and he's always very generous when he talks about George as a guitarist, and it's the first time I realised that he is always generous. He's always bigging up George's talents as a guitarist. Yeah. I, I guess the songwriting thing is a little bit more contentious, right? Because I think he he ends up still accidentally framing that in slightly damning refrain paint praise terms sometimes yeah. right yeah but he's always been really uh positive about george the guitarist and it, this is the first time where i was thinking but he paul is himself a fantastic guitarist yeah and actually it made me realize that he's i don't know if it's because he sees that as always being george's role so it's easier for him to compliment him in that way and for him to not feel like he has to compete yeah, I think I think uh, guitar is an area in which George is not treading on his toes. Yes, exactly. So, so it's yeah. easier for him to do that. I think you know, that songwriting. Obviously, there came a point, you know, sixty eight, sixty nine, where George the songs would, that George was writing were as good as uh, as John and Paul's. Yeah, and you know, if, if reports are to be believed, if they hadn't split up, the next album would have been three Paul, three George songs, three John songs. Mm. And one, two Ringo if he wanted it. I think they said. Yeah, yeah, as always. Um, and uh, so that would, and it would have been interesting to see how that went, because um, you know you think about all those songs that ended up on all things yeah. must pass. But they would have, they were arguably better than anything that Lennon or McCartney put out solo for the first year. Or and, so. I, and I still feel like you know we know from Get Back that the run through that they do of All Things Must Pass, the yeah, song, yeah. Uh, the harmonies on that, I still feel like sound mm. absolutely incredible uh, compared with what's eventually released. And it's a great song, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah. But just the thought of that being a Beatles song with their harmonies on it, just that would have been amazing. Right, yeah, there's just a magic to it, isn't yeah. it? Like as soon as they start harmonising, it's like yeah. nothing else.
talking of uh, talking heads, uh, Yoko has a little bit of input into this as well. Yeah. Um, it's quite interesting, I thought. I mean, I don't want to pick apart everything everyone says <laughs> in this film, but it is quite interesting, I thought, that she mentions George almost demanding that something is the is the next single. So she says, you know, he's written something, she says, George says, this is our new next single. Yeah. Uh, in the context of the film, it's a way of showing that George is confident in his abilities as a songwriter. He knows it's a good song. He's obviously... Um, putting his foot down with the others in terms of his role within the Beatles and saying this is good enough to be a single, it should be a single. What I sort of took slight issue with was um, Yoko follows that up with, um, that was, you know, George's first single. Normally the singles were Paul's and John John got the B-side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, that's not true. Like towards the end, maybe more so, but I think overall, and I I haven't done a tally, but I think overall it's fairly... I'd say say fairly equal. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think maybe there was a period where Paul was getting a few more. But to be fair, like in 69... You know, John was not was not writing as no, much. exactly, yeah. Like you know, but it, it felt like a strange, you know, as much as we we're saying about how uh, Paul in his sort of later years of interviews seems less intent on setting the record straight. That felt like a deliberate thing by Yoko to be <laughs> yeah. like, you know, yeah, Paul was always getting his own way, uh, <laughs> completely unnecessary. Yeah, well, but also I found it really interesting that you know the fact that Yoko's in it. Now, I mean, Yoko does do documentaries, mm. you know, and has done for 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 a while, but um, I just found it really interesting to have someone say to Yoko Ono, what did you think of George Harrison? N- never heard anyone ask her that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because, like, one of the things that people forget about Yoko Ono is that, if nothing else, she is an incredibly valuable eyewitness to the, the later period of the Beatles' career. Because everyone focuses on her relationship with John and like, did she break up the Beatles and did everyone argue stuff like that? And so you always get, you would always get people like Neil Aspinall um, being asked, Oh, what happened in what happened in 1968 in Apple behind the scenes? No one ever asked Yoko Ono that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. She was, she was there. Yeah, right. She was in the room all the time. Yeah. I mean, and literally all the time. Yeah. Um, so like it, and so everyone focuses on, well, the fact that she was in the room all the time must have caused tension, eh? And no one, no one ever asks her, like, oh, these, all, you know, all, all these stories we've heard about, like, this happened at the recording of this song, you were there, what happened? No one ever asks her that stuff. Yeah. So it's really interesting that she's actually being asked for her opinion on something other than John. Other than John, right? Yeah, yeah of yeah. course. And, and what's really nice about that is, um, and probably the, the one thing that really comes through in the film is how she talks about George as... Uh, as being just hugely collaborative yeah. and how Revolution Number no. 9 was George's idea mm-hmm. and she says that he got her involved it was you know George, John and Yoko producing yeah. this song yeah, yeah. and she she talks about it by saying that there was no suggestion from George that oh Yoko can't be involved because she's not a Beatle it was absolutely fine for her to be involved yeah. which was unheard of from anyone else I think there's probably an implication there that that Paul would never have done that, or maybe even John. John probably would have got Yoko involved, obviously. But, you know, the idea that George not being in a personal relationship with Yoko, but feeling it's absolutely fine to get her involved in a song, because yeah. why shouldn't she? In yeah. the same way that they talk about, um, and same way that George talks about getting Clapton involved in doing the guitar solo for right. um, Mama Guitar Gently Weeps. Yeah. Just this idea of he didn't feel like he had to safeguard this sort of, 
music relationship that only existed with the four of them. Yeah, he didn't feel like this this thing of the Beatles is like sacrosanct and yes. can't involve other people. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, that's kind of borne out in, as he puts it, you know, when they came back for Let It Be and he'd just been hanging out in Woodstock with Bob Dylan and the band and he'd just gone on tour with Delaney and Bonnie. Uh, well, that was around that time, wasn't it? You know, and I, I think um, he really seems to have got the bug for collaborating mm. with other people. And as I think we talked about, when we talked about the Travelling Wilburys documentary, um, you, you get the impression that other people treated him as an equal. And in mm. fact, because he was the only Beatle in the room when he was collaborating with other people, they may even have seen him as the leader a little bit yeah, and been more prepared to listen to his ideas. So I suppose he just felt a bit more at ease in those situations. It's funny because I think you can, you can like paint quite a complex psychological picture of George in terms of how he wants to work with other people. Because I think you could be forgiven for thinking that he doesn't like to collaborate because of... of the tensions that sort of um, he ended up feeling from being a Beatle with the rest of the Beatles. Yeah. And you can expect that as a result of that, he probably wouldn't want to immediately get into another band with other people. But actually he ended up deliberately seeking that out. Like he sought out collaborations. He sought out uh, friendships in, you know, in the music biz. And it felt like actually maybe it's not him uh, not wanting to be in a band, but more about a specific issue about egos. Yeah, um, which is a slightly more nuanced idea about what we think of George. I think you know yeah. this idea of him like walks walking out of the Let It Be sessions. You know, I quit the Beatles, uh, etc. Worked on King Fur, yeah. whatever it was in his diary entry. Um, but that's not the whole picture. You know, he then spent almost the rest of his career like having very successful collaborations with other people yeah and you can see in get back actually that he's quite keen to collaborate and he does collaborate very well you know when they all get together and play for you blue and also when he's talking about you know oh i've got this song something i'm not sure about you know attracts me like the uh you know the he is asking them for their input but he's not necessarily getting it all all the time there's there's an interesting yeah it's because there's, there's a clip in this, and obviously it's from it's, it's in the Get Back film as well, but it's used in this film very, very briefly where you hear him talk to the others about how he wants them to come in on All Things Must Pass. And he just mentions, like, oh, I'd really like you to come in here on this, by, by the way. Like, it's just almost like a polite way of suggesting that they um, contribute, like, some harmoni- yeah. uh, harmonies, you know, yeah. as opposed to the impression we get of particularly Paul and probably John at the time as well, which is very much like, this is how it needs to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, but it seemed, it, it almost feels more like an invitation to um, to contribute to his songs. Yeah. What I liked as well on that was um, when Tom Petty talks about Travelling Wilburys and he says that he just wanted to be in a band. Like, so he, he it's almost like he wanted to relive his experience of being in a band as he had with the Beatles. And he got, you know, the Travelling Wilburys together, like Bob Dylan, Robson, Jeff Lynne, and it's it's like he was trying to form a super group, but Tom Petty says like, but it was it was less it seemed less about him trying to get people together who are really good at their job and more about getting people together who are just fun to hang out with. Yeah. And it just so happened that he was friends with people he liked to hang out with people who were just also very good at their job. <laughs> you know. Um, but it just feels like that was the prerequisite for being a traveling Wilbury was just he just were enjoyable to be around. 
Yeah, I guess so. You know, it's a good way to collaborate as well. You know, find people you like working with. You know, yeah. and actually maybe the um, maybe the creative bits of things things you can get you can, you can get past. You know, I suppose you know if he'd been thinking differently about how to put together the traveling Wilburys, he might not have had five people all playing guitars at the same time. Yes, you know, <laughs> thought, oh, yes, exactly. Maybe let's have a bass player and a and a pianist. Yeah, wonder if Paul's free. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. It's interesting though, like what, like it does. It, it remind me of one of the things that struck me about this film is that it, it, you really get the sense that George had a lot of friends, mm. that he was a really popular guy. And again, this is one of the things, one of the things we know about him, or we're often told about him, is that he was quite standoffish, and that he um, that it came a point in his life where he basically just wanted to hang around at home and hang out in his garden and didn't really go out, but has lots and lots of friends as a popular guy and like you get the impression that once you're friends with him then then once you're in you were in you know and um you know and you don't get that impression with other Beatles dogs you don't get the impression that Paul McCartney has a lot of mates I get the impression that Paul McCartney has a lot of contacts (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah. people we can call upon (laughs) I I think I think that maybe sometimes we're in we're in danger of like Make it seem like we're a bit down on Paul. And, <laughs> oh, no. And I really it's, don't like we're both giant McCartney yeah, yeah. fans. We both absolutely love Paul McCartney. It's just and, fun. I think it is, yeah. But also, like, uh, because of what we do on this podcast, is we we are assessing the way he comes across on film. And yeah. so we've watched him be a talking head on documentaries a lot. And, and it's really interesting to, to watch him. Um, but no, I, I think that's quite a stark contrast. I don't mm. get the impression. You, you don't get the impression if there was. If there's going to be a documentary about Paul McCartney, if Martin Scorsese makes the Paul McCartney documentary, then he'll have plenty of talking heads of like people who he worked with who say how brilliant he was to work with. But I don't get the impression there'll be lots of people who say, Oh yeah, he was my mate and like here's a funny story about yeah. when like, you know, he just used to show up at my house and he had a load of ukuleles in his car and he gave me ukuleles. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. That that sense of humor that George has, like very, um, yeah, that that comes through, doesn't it? Like there were things that he did that were just fun. Yeah. Did you have you ever heard that Phil Collins story? I was just thinking about that. Yes, yes. Well, I can't remember exactly what. Like he tricked him, and it was a yeah. prank of some. Kind. What was the song? I can't remember. He played basically. He played um, session um, bass on a song. Yeah, it was off. Uh, all things must pass. It was like a bit, maybe something like Wawa, where there's loads of stuff buried in the mix. Yeah, and and then he mentioned it to to George. And then George sent him through a tape uh, to show how the reason he didn't use the take was because it was really bad. Yeah. But he basically re-recorded a re- deliberately bad bass <laughs> just to mess it. with him, that which is just it. incredible. That was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, just just this idea of George doing that stuff. I'd like to think, I'd like to think that Paul has all all of that same side up to him as well. Like he's not, you know, like. Uh, I feel like he's very, very smart and um, self-aware interviews these days. Um, I just think that he's, he's, he's quite close-guarded of his image. I, I would love to see a documentary about Paul where there's a little bit of freedom and flexibility with what gets said about him by you know those who know him best. I'd love to hear some anecdotes behind closed doors of, of things that we don't know. Yeah, you know? It's a, well, interestingly, like I was... There was an interview. I was listening the other day to uh, the Conan O'Brien um, oh, yeah. podcast where Paul was on as a guest because he was on to uh, promote the new book of the photos that he took. It was called In the Eye of the Storm, I think it's called. Yeah. 
the photos that he took in um, the early 60s. And Paul says in that, oh, Elvis Costello texted me the other day to say this and that, whatever he was talking about. And I thought like, oh, you and Elvis Costello text each other. Yeah. Because you know? like, you know, famously in the 80s, that that collaborative partnership was great for a little while. And then it got to the point where you were um, ringing up your manager saying, you need to get this guy fired because yeah, yeah. He's, he's challenging me on, on stuff, you know. So, but that's it. But this is why I kind of think like, you know, I don't mean at all that he's an unlikable guy. I think he's very likable. I think he's very funny, and 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 and, uh, and I can see how it'd be fun to hang out with. I don't get the, imp- but I get the impression that maybe he has kind of cultivated a persona where people are a bit intimidated by him. Yeah, sure. That's why I like hearing. Um, uh, I know we're in danger of making this episode about the George Harrison, the the two time <laughs> Emmy Award winning <laughs> documentary about George Harrison, yeah. all about Paul. Yeah, all about a fictional Paul McCartney documentary. <laughs> yeah. That has never been made. <laughs> yeah. like... But but um, on the same note about you know, how fondly people talk about him, I do find that um, one of the reasons why it's always so brilliant to hear anything that Dave Grohl ever has to say is that he has a lot of Paul McCartney anecdotes and they're all fantastic. Like yeah. it's all Paul McCartney came around his house one day and ended up giving his daughter a piano lesson. And it's like my, my nine-year-old is being taught piano by Paul McCartney. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, I, I saw something the other day about how uh, that he was at, Paul McCartney's house and they were just jamming and it was like him, Paul McCartney, Taylor Swift was there and someone else uh, I don't know what. and um, Paul was playing a song, in my mind it was Lady Madonna, don't know why because he normally like talks about finding a piano and saying this is the piano where I played Lady Madonna right. like, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, and then Dave Grohl says um, you know it was his turn to play something but like all the guitars were left handed and like he's not that good a piano player, but Taylor Swift ended up saving him by playing one of the Foo Fighters songs right. uh, on guitar and stuff. And it was just, I, I just like I want more insight into that world, you know? Yeah, like yeah, these yeah. incredible like musicians all yeah. in the room together because Paul has instigated it, and they're all friends with him, and he's yeah. friends with them, you know. Yeah, that's I would love to know more about that in this fictional documentary about Paul McCartney that we <laughs> have decided should be made. <laughs> There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So there's another retelling in this film of what you might term the raunchy legend. Um, so <laughs> That's what they used to call me at school. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> of... Um, so what I mean when I say the raunchy legend is the, is uh, the story of how George joined the band. So 
Paul was already his friend. They already talked about guitars a lot. Paul had joined the band and was in the band with John. And uh, to impress John and convince him that this kid was a good enough guitarist, Paul said they were on the top deck of a bus. And uh, Paul said, go on, get your guitar out. And George played raunchy, you know. So like, Paul tells this story in the anthology. Everything. <laughs> uh, in everything, you're right. In the anthology. But it's told very similarly here and it just sort of it, it made me think that so that Scorsese in this film is sort of he's taking the existing Beatles footage and treating it ever so slightly differently but there are bits of it that he's sort of treating uh, very similarly but I think the telling of this story it made me think that maybe this this story is actually like quite key to Beatles lore hmm. in general um, and maybe the fact that it sort of took place on the top deck of a bus um, is sort of maybe emblematic of something that's quite key to the Beatles legend, the, the sort of ordinariness from which they came. You know, it was interesting recently when Samira Ahmed was uh, questioning Paul on stage at uh, the launch of the lyrics book. So I suppose, what was that, a year and a half ago or so? Um, and she asked him a question about buses. Mm. And how buses seem to crop up a lot in your story, don't they? And she got a really interesting answer out of him, you know. Um, and I think that it's that's quite key to them in general, just the, the ordinariness, like th this thing that is so incredibly special, yeah, sprung up out of such ordinary circumstances. You know? I, I think that that's always true, isn't it? Of of Paul and Ringo as well. As I think they've in interviews, they always seem very, whether consciously or deliberately or not, they always seem like they're um uh, quick to stress the working class roots of the Beatles. Mm. Um and that's when those kind of details come through. It's kind of a romanticism about that as well, isn't there? Like, you know, the greatest band of all time was born on the top deck of a bus. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. with like some scrappy guitar. Yeah. Um yeah. like throwing riffs between each other. Yeah. That's why they always you know, uh, I think George in this film as well goes on to talk about how um he had to show he had to show John, like, you know, E and A and stuff. And then there's that, yeah. they don't mention it in this one, but, you know, the other legend is that they had to go across town on a bus to find out how to play the B minor seven chord so they can complete the 12 bar blues. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was, a guy, there was a guy who knew B7. So, yes. Yeah, so we, it was, they, oh, that's right, yeah, B7. It yeah. was on their bikes. They cycled across. Oh, right. Across town, uh, to, yeah, 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 and so yeah, that's one like Paul's very fond of telling that story yeah. as well. But but that's like you can understand, I guess, why it, you're right in the sense that it's 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 important to Beatles' law and in setting the the you know the the stage for them becoming the greatest band of all time. Yeah, but just as like Paul was an old timer now, like sort of romanticizing that idea of uh, when things were simpler and how what a quirky idea that is now of them like mega famous rock stars but there was a time when they had to get on a bike to you know travel across town to learn a chord you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. I and mean, you know the, i know we make fun of a lot of uh these anecdotes being churned out in in everything all the time but i don't think i ever really get tired of hearing them because they're good stories oh yeah yeah they're you know? brilliant stories you know and they you know they've been told a lot you know um and it, yeah, no, they're, they're very, but as I say, I mean, that ordinariness is very much part of them. You know, I was really struck by, you don't see them very much, but like George's two brothers. Yes, they're um, right at the start. They're, they're right at the start and they're both like sitting in what appears to be like their house in Liverpool or like yes. one of their houses in Liverpool, you know, you, you guess. 
and they're both sitting in sort of like lazy boy chairs, like yes, right next to right, each yeah. other. And they're both um, just absolutely the most sort of salt of the earth, ordinary, like, like everyday scousers in their 70s who you could hope to see. And they're yeah. wearing like sort of polo, polo shirts and trainers and stuff like that. And there is not a hint that either of them was at all touched by like the flower power movement or anything like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, so and, like, right. But, but it, yeah. And you, you kind of think like, oh, but you, you're like George Harrison's brothers, right? Presumably, like you must have been going to visit him and like, uh, you know, dropping acid. Presumably you have like a sort of uh, some sense of the taste of the finer things in life, you know, but they, well, they the do thing. just come across like my dad. Yeah, exactly, which is lovely. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, you know, and it's really not, and I, I actually wanted to see a little bit more of them. Yeah. Because I felt like that maybe wasn't played upon quite enough. But I, I, but yeah, I really like that idea. And it may be that they were like massive hippies, and then you know, like like most massive hippies, stopped being massive hippies yes, and just yeah, got, yeah. got jobs. You know, <laughs> like because that's what that's what lots of them did. Quite so. a depressing uh, truism of the hippie movement, really, yeah. isn't it? Well, that's pretty much what happened. You know, <laughs> um, I, I one thing as well I liked about that. You're, you're so right, by the way, because um, it would been really interesting for them to pop up later on, and for us to understand their relationship with George as he was going through important parts yeah, of yeah, I would like to um, his yeah. career. There, there's a, a bit in the film where um uh quite early on it, uh, an interviewer mentions george being approached by someone um at the gates and he was in switzerland and and he's like oh yeah that was my mother and they laugh and yeah. the interview basically says oh she had to i oh, know it was ireland it wasn't switzerland, it was ireland it's like oh, your mother had to go to ireland to visit you and it's like yeah right, it's because yeah. they were on tour and i guess that was the closest way that she was able to, <laughs> right, to see him right, yeah. but it would have been quite interesting to see how true that was of, of his brothers and what were they up to at that time yeah, yeah but the other thing i like about that as well is that they are the first interviewees i think in the documentary and the first thing you hear either of them say is one of them basically saying okay shall i start then Yes, you know, and it's like a, it's an interesting thing I think for Scorsese to include in the film. Like yeah. it's this sort of glimpse of of how the talking heads in uh, that, that he's recorded for the movie kind of sit apart from the actual movie itself. Like yeah. you know, I I kind of get the impression that the the documentary is the film, and then when they cut across to the the actual interviews, it's almost like they're just commentating on what is actually the proper film and you kind of get a sense that it's almost like we're getting a glimpse of behind the scenes yeah stuff that's happening yeah i think yeah because i mean that sort of verite style of documentary making i mean every netflix documentary now starts with the, someone sitting down and yes, like adjusting right. the microphone yeah, yeah, and saying yeah, right are we yeah. ready to start then you know it always happens yeah it? but yeah but maybe less so at the time but actually i'm not sure that it happens with other talking heads in this film particularly not not like how do i start but there are there are a lot of moments in the film where the interviewee like says something funny and you hear like the you know people behind the camera laugh along yeah, and like yeah. there's you can see how they're sharing like a glance at each other yeah um even if you can't see who's behind the, the camera yeah. um, so there's a little bit of a sense of that part of the documentary the format of that part of the documentary being a little bit more relaxed yeah, and I think it, it seems to me, it sort of goes along with the way they're being filmed as well. It seems to me that Scorsese has made a decision that he wants the talking head scenes to feel sort of lived in, mm. in some way, because the camera is moving. Now, that's kind of quite rare. So you think about talking head documentaries, basically because they tend to be sort of quite cheaply made, and what the last thing you want like what what you want is to be able for someone to say something and then you cut away to a bit of other footage 
and then you cut back to something that they actually said two hours later in this conversation, but you can edit it in so that um, they, so it looks like they said it straight away. Mm. Um, and so for that reason, you want continuity. You want that, you know, that they need to, you know, if they've got a glass of water in front of them, it needs to be at the same level the whole time. They can't yeah. drink out of it, you know. They don't, you know, they don't take off the glasses and put them back on, you know. They, they have to stay the same. So, it, so like, the camera tends to be very static. In this, it isn't. It's moving quite a lot. It's not played upon particularly, but it, it but it is moving around. And you think, well, why are you doing this? This is just you're just filming a person in a room. You don't particularly need to see it. And then I, I watched the Scorsese documentary about Bob Dylan, No Direction Home, which sort of is a similar length, slightly shorter, and was made in the early noughties. I'm going to say about 2005 or so, mm. and um, that uses similar techniques with the talking heads mm. to, to the extent that there are talking heads, you know, there's a folk singer who's being filmed in a bar and uh, there's another talking head. I forget who it is, but behind her is um, it's like she's being filmed in a diner, but there's no pretense that this is a diner that is open and is serving customers, but there is someone sitting behind her in the booth and we just see the back of their head the whole time. There's no reason for that to be done. That is a stylistic choice. And I think it's because he seems to want his talking heads to appear to be in a sort of living situation, mm. you know, to, for the, those scenes to feel kind of lived in. I think probably he's quite conscious of this idea that documentaries tend to be a lot of splicing between footage and then you seeing someone talking. Yeah, you know? yeah. And it maybe kind of wants that to be a bit less abrupt in terms of cutting between the two, I would guess. I don't yeah, know. that makes sense. Uh, you know, I think it makes sense that... He's thinking about the finished product, you know, like yeah. how how the two uh, formats work alongside each other. Yeah. But I also wonder if yeah, I, I think every documentarian has a approach to how they interview people, and I think from what you just said then, and certainly the impression I got from from the George Harrison documentary is that uh, he wants those interviews to be really informal. And and I imagine as a filmmaker, what you want is for your interviewee to be to feel relaxed enough to be able to uh go to perhaps more personal spaces which i think is what happens in this this film you know we we have ringo tells a lovely story about george's last words to him and and full out cries yeah which i have i don't know if if you have but i haven't seen that story told anywhere else before but the fact that ringo is in the film and cries uh talking about you know we never have thought that was the case at all danny harrison says some quite revealing stuff about him being wanting to rebel against his dad and thinking that his dad was quite tough. And, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, sort of almost reveling in this idea that he was pissing off the old man. Yeah. Uh, Olivia talks, I was very surprised about this, but she talks quite candidly about George being unfaithful to her and not being explicit with details, but you know, mm. you, you know that that is the case. And, and I do wonder if part of that is, is Scorsese's approach to those interviews and wanting to get his interviews in a place where they feel relaxed enough to talk about quite personal things. That's how he knows he's going to get a good film and, and good conversation to, to, to use. Yeah, and I think um, one of the things you notice is it's this is a bit more discursive than other documentaries. And like maybe because of the amount of time that they're getting to explore it, um, it may be just as simple as there's more stuff left in the edit that usually wouldn't be but there are people are sort of discussing ideas 
a bit more than they would do. You know, sort of Terry Gilliam is sort of doing that at one point. He's sort of talking about, you know, this idea that maybe George was sort of caught between the spiritual and material worlds. Mm. And Talking Heads seem to have been encouraged not just to rattle off anecdotes. Yeah, you know? yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. So, so you do, there is a little bit of anecdote telling. Obviously, Paul does a bit, you know, Eric Idle does his thing about Life of Brian being the most anyone's ever paid for a cinema ticket, which he always says, mm. you know, it's a good joke, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But generally speaking, people are there to uh, to discuss a bit, it seems. And also the thing I really notice is that people are only in the documentary talking about the point at which they knew George or they were kind of, yes, you know, so, you mean, like, yeah. so you, you actually don't see Olivia until this is, you know, about three hours long. You don't really, you don't actually see Olivia at all until the third hour, until about two hours in, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And so, sense, it, yeah. It, so you don't have this thing where you get like her at the start talking about how, how wonderful he was or anything like that. That's know? true. That's yeah. so true. And that makes me realize that when you do, when that does happen in films, that always strikes me as being quite odd because yeah. you, you, you're jumping around between sort of like a, a narrative continuity, aren't you? You're talking, you know, here's someone who knew this person 30 years later talking about what they were like. So you're right, yeah. That's a it's a a choice that Scorsese's made there. Yeah. The other thing as well, part uh, as part of that is what you often hear in the film direct questions that the interviewer is asking. Yeah. Um, and some of those are quite probing. Uh, I quite enjoyed the um. Uh, I think the film starts off as well with with the interviewer asking various talking heads, you know, what would you say to uh, George if he was around now? Mm. Which is quite just an interesting question to start things off with, right? It's not, yeah. you know, what what were you doing when this happened? It was, you know, it's quite a conceptual question to ask. Yeah, well, as fits the subject matter. Yeah, you know, Danny's answer to that is really revealing. Right? Revealing, yeah, because yeah, he says, um, "Where have you been?" Mm. You know, like yeah, and, he's, and he talks about he just he recently had a dream about his dad. He says, "Oh, I've been yeah. around or whatever it was." He yeah. says, "I, I, I it's, it's really interesting how he answered that question because he says, um, uh, you know, I had a dream about it, so I can I can tell you what I asked him then in the dream. I said, where have you been?' And and actually he answered, so I can tell you what his answer was as well. His <laughs> his answer was, "I've always been here." Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm always quite surprised by how matter of fact Danny I think talks about these things in. Uh, in the documentary like he talks about uh you know we can go on to talk about it later as well but he talks about when george was attacked by the intruder in his house yeah and he talks about how you know that attack like he was battling cancer and then had to overcome the physical assault of, of someone and that definitely took years of his life yeah but it's he's quite um candid uh, talking about that and i wonder if that's it's quite shocking in a way i think sometimes because it's like oh this this must contribute to some kind of personal grief that you must be feeling but mm. i also wonder if over time he has sort of a greater acceptance of his dad's death in the same way that george seemed to have of his own death before it happened yeah i think i think that family is very comforted by the way that sort of george uh left this life mm. i don't think that any of them needs convincing particularly of uh like george's commitment to sort of achieving enlightenment and to the idea that he actually did when mm. he left this earth you know so i mean it's worth saying that this is uh this documentary is where uh, olivia like says quite explicitly uh it's a little coy i suppose but she says at the moment of his death 
you wouldn't have needed to light the room, mm. put it that way. If you were going to film it, you wouldn't have needed to light the room. There was a profound uh, experience that happened when he left his body. It was visible. Let's just say you wouldn't, you wouldn't need to light the room if you were trying to film it. You know, he, um, he, just, he just lit the room. She's essentially saying that, you know, she, she witnessed, you know, a, a moment, a, a state of grace, you know, a, yeah. a moment of divine bliss, you know, mm. which is lovely, by the way, uh, you know, and I think it's lovely that this film um, gives her the space to say something like that. Yes. And she will, I mean, you know, she's an executive producer on this film, so, you know, she's pr probably going to say what she wants broadly, but um, that... Uh, this is a space in which she feels comfortable saying something like that. Mm. It's one of the interesting things about being a, a Beatles fan and a George fan in particular is that I don't consider myself religious or spiritual. And it, when I was younger, I was a bit more, you know, you know sort of into the sort of intellectual idea of atheism, mm. you know, before I started finding it quite boring and realizing that most most of it's, public um <laughs> most of the sort of public apologists for athe atheism are actually just quite dull <laughs> <laughs> um and quite humorless and so i stopped banging on about it quite so much but it, it never really applied to the way i think about george i'm perfectly happy to accept the idea that george achieved spiritual enlightenment you know that he went on to a better place because it's because it's nice you know yeah i, I like you know it it it, it, it fits my interpretation of who he was i don't feel the need to interrogate it i don't feel the need you know i don't think an interviewer needs to say to olivia well hold on what are you saying <laughs> yes, exactly but, yeah. oh, it, what exactly did you see yeah and yeah. and so I, and i don't think to myself ah well you know this family would you know because one explanation if you, if you wanted a rational explanation for what for, for that you might say okay well this family was in a lot of grief um, and you know these things can make you can make the mind play tricks on you. Yeah, like, yeah and sure, like yeah. Maybe, maybe your mind saw what you wanted to see, that kind of thing. And you know, maybe, maybe that's true, you know. But I don't. The film doesn't feel the need to interrogate it, and shouldn't. And I don't feel the need to interrogate it either. You know? I think the um, the overriding sense I get from the from her talking like that, and from the overall ending of the film is there's a. I find it really interesting that. Before Olivia talks about George's actual death, they talk about spending time together, um, you know, sharing like last few uh, moments together, last few weeks together, just being in each other's company and enjoying that. Yeah. And as part of that, asking each other, you know, I hope I was a good husband, and you know, was I, I hope I was an okay wife, and yeah. sort of addressing this idea of you know whether they were good enough for each other, and and almost like wrapping things up you know in a yeah. nice way like uh not in a way that caused any kind of contention just it, it felt that you know the overall sense i get from the end of the film is this uh idea of george being quite content with his life and being content with heading towards the end of his life and the film seems to follow a similar tone you know like we can talk about these things like livia talking about george being unfaithful but how they persevered in their marriage and that's okay they were able to make that work and there were rewards for doing that and you know taking the 
the the rougher to smooth as it were and it just ended up being uh, ended up approaching everything from a quite a pragmatic point of view because there's just a, a an overall contentment with life in general and that the film seems to almost arrive at, at, at a similar sort of place yeah. by just um exploring this uh, you know exploring topics that sort of make you feel that way everyone's just kind of just happy generally with everything there's nothing there's nothing nothing no no other stone to be unearthed or 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 any other point to be made everyone was just happy yeah yeah you know so i don't think you know like you say i don't think we need to explore necessarily the exact moments of george's death i think it was more about the place they they've all found themselves in at the time when that happened yeah absolutely um you know, and, and worth mentioning too that George died in Paul's house in Los Angeles. You know, like Paul, mm. you know, there must have been an arrangement. And they were close enough by the end where there was an arrangement where Paul said, go to my house, you know, you, know, yeah, you, can, yeah. you can have this, you know, for as long for as long as you need it or, or whatever that arrangement was. Yeah. Know? But there wasn't, you know, I remember I remember when it happened, it, it, that, that wasn't announced at the time. But then I, th- I think when it later was announced, I thought, um, oh, that's I wonder if there was a bit of George that was a bit pissed off. Mm. Yeah, just like, oh, I've got to, uh, it's, oh, this, no, this yeah. guy's been talking down to me my whole life. And like, <laughs> no, you know, no, I, I can't even die in my own house. You know, <laughs> you know I, I wonder whether there was yeah. a part of him. But, I, you know, I think actually um, when we were talking about the all together now doc and we, and we were quite surprised at the idea that they'd gone to see a Las Vegas show together. Mm. Um, actually, I think these guys in the last couple of years of George's life were pretty close. I get and, him, and I, I get and I guess that's the point as well, isn't it? It's just this um, everything that I've learned about George from this film chimes with that in the sense that you just kind of got the impression that George didn't want to have any continuing grudges. I think in the Beatles in India documentary, he talks about how he ended up going back and I guess apologising to and um smoothing things over with maharishi right yeah um you know not not feeling good about how that had previously ended and wanting to to sort of settle that sort of relationship and i guess it must have been a similar thing with paul no matter what there what animosity there may have been between them in the past you kind of just got the impression that george reached a point where he didn't want that with anybody yeah seems like it One of the um, things, actually, thinking about it, the you know, as much as it's a, a nice note that the film ends on with this idea of George and those around him being content in their lives, it does come after what is quite a explicit account of the intruder in their house and what is actually a very sort of visceral description, blow by blow description of exactly what happened yeah. with this guy that turned up in their bedroom with a knife in his hand and. You know, attacking George and then attacking Olivia, and George then jumps on his back and stuff like that. I was not expecting such a sort of detailed account of exactly yeah. what happened there. Yeah, it's quite violent, <laughs> like, it's very... and, it, and not the kind of thing that you'd normally hear in this kind of film because normally those kind of things, because it's it's a moment that's you know would be you know, you'd imagine be, you know people experiencing some sort of trauma from that yeah. experience yeah. so you don't think it imagine you don't imagine it would come uh easily for someone who's gone through that to talk about it yeah so it's quite shocking when that comes up and olivia 
goes through that in detail. Yeah, that, that, it's quite surprising. I remember the first time I saw this, I was quite surprised by the details she went into. Like, I remember that when that happened, you know, that was, that was two days before the millennium. It was 30th of December, 1999. And so I remember feeling that, you know, the the news, it was a little bit lost in the news cycle, oddly, like an assassination attempt against a beetle. Yeah. When we've all been here before, you know, 20 years before as it was, you know, it felt incredibly significant to me at the time. And I felt a bit like, you know, I'm sure it was the front page story, you know, for like a day, but it felt to me like it just sort of went away a little bit mm. and got forgotten about. And so I remember when I saw this film for the first time, there was a bit of me that was like, oh yeah, I sort of forgot that happened. Um, and like you, was quite taken aback by the detail into which it goes Yeah, about it. One of the striking things in it is that George, I forget whether you see, whether, whether I've taken this from George saying it in footage at the time or whether Olivia quotes him in this, in this, but um, the the fact that at a certain point in the fight with this guy, George thought, oh, I'm about to die. I am being murdered and I need to prepare for that because I've been preparing for death mm. my whole life. Um, Olivia says, you know, he was so angry about the fact that John had just been uh, like taken so violently from the world and hadn't had the chance to sort of prepare for death in the way that George had been preparing for yeah. death his whole life. What a remarkable thing to be in the middle of um, this is a sort of fight or flight moment, you know. Yeah. And no matter how spiritual you are, the, the detail of him chanting Harry Krishna at him from the top of the stairs is, is quite funny in a way. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But, um, but like, no matter how spiritual you are, uh, like a guy is in your house and he's about to attack your wife and your mother-in-law, so you try and beat him up, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's true, yeah. Um, but also right in the middle of this, uh, when the adrenaline is rushing, he has a moment of realisation, oh, I think I'm about to die. And so I'm going to start preparing for that. Mm. You know, as this guy is, you know, has stabbed me 15 times and about to stab me for the 16th. Yeah, yeah. It, I just thought that that was really interesting about the way that George's mind worked. Mm. Yeah. I, you know, because it's, it's, the other thing that struck me about that shortly after then, I think there's footage of George talking about, um, about you know, preparing for his own death. And he says... Something like, um, you know, in finding reasons to to want to stay in yeah. his life. And he says, um, you know, I have a son, so yeah. I need to do everything I can to, to stick around for him. Yeah. But other than that, I don't see any reason to stay. Yeah. And if, and, you're, if you're Olivia, you think... Oh. Yeah, hang on, excuse me. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> absolutely that. But I, I, I just, I saw that, like, in the context of the film, you know, and a lot of discussion about him being prepared for his own death. That makes sense, but it also just struck me as it's the it's the kind of thing that someone on, who suffers from depression would say. Mm. You know, like I I kind of almost got the sense of I, I don't know it's just the way it was said. I I guess I I felt almost a little bit sad by the way he said that. It wasn't you know there's there's being prepared for death, but there's also uh, enjoying what the things that life has to give you. And I just got the impression the way he said that that that's those are those aren't the same thing for him. Oh, you know. I, so I, I know exactly what you mean because the way that he expresses that mm. uh, gives that impression. But actually, I think really what he's expressing there is the idea that he he is entirely confident 
that this material world is is one of which he can divest himself. Right. And and actually, it doesn't particularly matter the the point at which he dies. Right. Or what he's leaving behind because he isn't leaving those things behind. Okay. You know. Okay. Um, and 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 that these are material things. Mm. Um. So that's kind of how I interpret that. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So okay. I think. So I think. I mean, it's it's sort of lovely in a way that he's mm. saying that, um, r- rather than sad. But I, I can completely see how it. Um, yeah. How it comes across that way. One of the things about Danny is, oh, he, he looks at well, at this stage like looks so much like George looked in about 1964 that that in itself is sort of quite quite eerie in a mm. way. Well, not yeah. eerie, but it's it, it's actually quite nice and quite comforting because you know it's sort of gives you this sense that he, he's living on in some way. Um, and Danny talks in a way about George that I always found sort of quite moving. When I first saw this film, uh, I remember being moved pretty much to tears by the way th- there's some footage of them uh, sort of recording together in the studio where Danny has just done a bit of guitar and then he puts the guitar down and just sort of... Um, it just impromptu just goes over and hugs his dad and it's quite late isn't it George looks really old in that footage like yeah, it must be quite yeah. later on I think yeah I think it will be in the 90s or so because Danny looks like he's maybe a teenager at that point mm. you know he talks you, you get the impression of just the, the way he grew up as like you get the impression he's gone to a sort of he's gone to a private school uh, you know somewhere in Oxfordshire where they where Friar Park is and um, he's talking about you know he was in he was in the ccf at school um and so he was sort of um walking around in a naval uniform or an air force uniform i forget which one um and he said you know that that really used to piss my dad off you know because like you know and in our family to rebel was to do that thing that was expected of you my dad was always saying i think this was the thing that really did for me actually is that like he says that his dad would say to him come on you know bunk off school let's go on an adventure together yeah let's go on the boat or something like that and i think that was just really lovely also the the story he tells about like oh i had some trouble with a local policeman which i presume is like a little you know drugs or or something like that and then the policeman turns up on the doorstep and george told him to fuck off (laughs) which i just thought was lovely yeah because you know, I, I love that being the turning point for danny as well it was like oh actually my dad's cool <laughs> yeah yeah exactly you know and yeah I, but i just really appreciated that about because it really spoke to um it really sort of confirmed the the rebel in george that was still there even as an older man yeah um who was still someone who just didn't have a lot of time for policemen yeah you know yeah. I, I like that the fact that that rebellious spirit that sort of anti-authoritarian spirit was just still there in him even in his its final album you know the posthumous album you know which is c- concerned with profound themes like you know, like like death and mortality and 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 He's potentially achieving a state of grace. He's still, there's still a song on there where he's just moaning about the Catholic Church, you know, because yeah. he's just, because he still really, really hated those authority figures. Yeah, he just had no yeah. time for them, you know. I just found that really appealing. It's quite suspicious, to say the least. Even mentioned it to my local priest. One of other three Hail Marys each Saturday night. The other um, uh, interesting thing about Danny is that they he he 
provides that narration in the form of reading George's letters and yeah. diaries, doesn't it? Which yeah, is of course. Quite interesting. Like it's um, uh, and some of those I'm assuming that some of those uh had never been revealed or published before. Because yeah. I, I know that um you know for this film Olivia basically opened up the family archives to Martin Scorsese, which so I'm assuming normally that means that a lot of this is unpublished work. So Yeah, there, um, there was a sort of uh, sort of glossy book that was published alongside this that's documentary right, there was. That, she, that she did. So I, I'm guessing quite a lot Possibly of that is that. in there. Yeah. But um but yeah getting Danny to read some of those is quite interesting because it's obviously it's you know, like you say, similar um look and similar age uh, I guess from some of those time periods. Yeah. Uh, one of my favourite things, though, in the um, uh, as part of that is that some of the the letters that George wrote that gets read by Danny in the film um, uh, sort of tell these wonderful stories, but end up being written and therefore read in quite a prosaic way. Yeah. Dear Mum and Dad, the shows have been going great with everybody going potty, and everywhere we go, we have about twenty police on motorbikes escorting us. We have had two Cadillacs every place, but tonight when we finished the show and ran out, the cars weren't there and had gone to another door. So we went back inside until we could get out. All the kids came out of the show and saw the two cars around the side and stormed them and jumped all over them, and the drivers had to get out and both cars were completely wrecked, and the roofs were right down on the seats inside. Some girl fell through a skylight from the roof of a building, and 45 more were put in hospital. In the end, we escaped in an ambulance. But don't worry, because no one can get near us for all the police and security. <laughs> <laughs> what I did on my holidays. Yeah, yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> Double-spaced. Um, yeah, just really, really interesting. But but also, you know, great to get that insight from George at that time as well. You know, it's always useful, I think, when a documentary has that sort of device to lean on because then you're not just relying on footage of George remembering a thing that happened to him, but he's actually talking about it 10 15 years afterwards yeah, this is actually yeah. stuff that he wrote about it and how he was feeling at the time so yeah yeah so there's another interesting talking head in this which is phil Spector. yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so, i mean phil Spector is is obviously uh, a person who is in a, a great position to talk about george's work in the 70s um you know he was in the room he was producing his records um but also um it, it, it's really important to think about the context in which the Phil Spector footage will have been shot. So this film comes out in 2011. By this point, um, Phil Spector was a convicted murderer who was in, already in prison. He'd been convicted and imprisoned in 2009. And this film, I think, was filmed over about period of about five years right. i think scorsese was sort of making shutter island at the same time so it was kind of you know a, a sort of on-off project for him um, and this footage was all being uh, being gathered at the time so it, we can assume that phil Spector was being filmed probably after his original mistrial for this crime but i think pretty much whichever way you slice it this is a film that has a talking head a talking head contribution from a convicted murderer who at the time that he was being filmed had already committed the murder and people knew he had committed the murder or at least yeah. that he had uh, that someone had died by some kind of misadventure in his home yeah so that's interesting yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't get that in every film do you no yeah no, i mean not every film um i'll even go so far as to say phil Spector is one of those 
just one of those people, one of those characters, like even uh, even regardless of the murder, <laughs> which <laughs> admittedly is is a problem, is just someone that whenever I hear him speak, I I I don't I don't really enjoy him popping up. No, you know, like I feel like a lot of what comes out of uh, his mouth feels self-aggrandizing in some way. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it's it's him saying. Uh, George played me all these songs and I knew immediately in My Sweet Lord was the most commercial song like that was the one no one no one thought that was the one but I knew that was the one and right. it's that kind of thing you know yeah, like yeah. this it, this idea he kind of presents of himself as, as being sort of slightly apart and more sort of supernaturally tuned into what's right musically than, than anyone else might know yeah so yeah so so that and the murder Possibly two reasons why um, maybe he shouldn't have been included in the finished film. Well, maybe, yeah. You know, I, I wonder at the uh, the morality in general of including his contribution because you could have you could have not included it specifically, mm. specifically because like no matter. So um, uh, there was probably some ambiguity about whether he was guilty. Well, in fact, there was when he was being filmed, there was definitely ambiguity about whether or not he was guilty. Right. Mm. But by the time this film comes out, there is there is no ambiguity about the fact that this is a convicted murderer. Yeah. And so you could have just decided not to include him. And and also because I don't think his contribution to the film is so important to the uh, story yeah. that you couldn't literally just lift and shift out the, I don't know, 40-odd seconds that he appears in the film yeah. out of three and a half hours. <laughs> like, right. I feel right. like that could have been an easy decision to make. Yeah, and maybe just spliced in Jeff Lynn, who got, yeah. who, who got cut Where's out. Where's that? Or, like his... or Damon Hill, who got cut out. Cut I mean, out Damon, Damon Hill, I, I can, no, I can fair, leave. Fair, but, fair like, but yeah, like, hugely, uh, you know, huge partnership and collaboration with Jeff Lynn for, for Travelling Wilburys. And, you know, you really get the sense from the Travelling Wilburys doc that we've discussed previously that the two really embarked on that project um hand in hand no no inclusion of him whatsoever i was quite yeah shocked by that yeah yeah true you know love a bit of jeff yeah and he's um you know he's taken the trouble to be filmed in his own snooker room as well you know <laughs> and uh i wonder whether probably what happened was that they had tom petty and they had jeff lynn mm. and maybe there was enough overlap in the period of George's life that they were talking about, i.e. when they were friends with him, mainly in the 80s, Mm. um, the 80s onwards, that maybe there wasn't space to have both of them in there. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I I mean, I I feel like Travelling Wilbur's is is a significant part of George's career. Yeah. And overall, in the grand scheme of things, I wonder if it probably had a a little bit of a light touch in, in this film. I think it probably could have done with a, a twenty second, you know, Lynn segment. Yeah, maybe that's true. Um, but yeah, it, but yeah, yeah. I mean, Je- Je- Jeff can feel quite hard done by. You know, whatever you say, whatever you think about Jeff Lynn or the work of ELO, he's never murdered anyone. So, no, <laughs> to my knowledge. You know. Yeah, I mean that really does rub salt into the wound, doesn't it? <laughs> One of the key talking heads that we haven't spoken about yet in much detail, um, but he is uh, a big contributor to the film, is Clapton. Yeah. A really interesting, some of the stories that he tells, mm. his friendship with, with George is obviously quite a unique one. 
it's i i particularly like the exchange i think the interview at one point says have you seen that uh moment in let it be when george leaves and uh there's an idea of we should just get clapton in the band and it's like yeah and the interview, <laughs> interview follows up with well would you and he just bursts out laughing yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's and it's really interesting <laughs> it's like it's it's such a weird thing it's a strange response it's almost like he's never even considered like whether he would have if he got asked before he knew that that happened in the film but he like you know answering that question almost took him by surprise oh no no i think he's laughing at the ridiculousness of the idea yeah yeah no sure but but i'm sure he's considered it but it's spontaneous laughter oh yeah i mean like you're right right, the way he gets asked it and he's like he bursts into laughter because it's like oh like but then he 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 talks about it's such an interesting point that he makes about how the the pros and cons of of being in a band like that mm. are extreme. Yeah, 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 you know, and that's that really what it's what it comes down to. Like, yeah. it, it, it can afford someone like amazing uh, opportunities and uh, you know uh, a wealth of of great stuff, but at the other end of it, yeah, is it? Yeah, it's interesting the way he talks about that because. Because you you suspect that someone like Eric Clapton had a very different nineteen sixties mm. to George Harrison. So like you know, Clapton spent the sixties being in some quite big deal bands, um, and being like really revered by like certain people in a, in certain circuit. But broadly speaking, he could still go down the shops. Yes, I see. I mean, yeah, you know, people. It, yeah. it, it's like he was fine just to go to pubs and cinemas and restaurants and stuff. Yeah. And he might get the odd person wanting an autograph or whatever. But generally speaking, he could just go about his day. And someone like George just absolutely could not do that. And one, one of the, because um, obviously, you know, Clapton is God, right? Like he's, you know, the yeah. uh, famously, famously one of the greatest guitarists of all time. One of the things that I found really interesting about, uh, one of the things that he says in his film is he talks about George being such a great innovator on guitar. Yeah. Which I don't think is something that we really hear enough about. Like, you know, we, yeah. we've spoken before uh, earlier about Paul talking up uh, how talented George is as a guitarist and, you know, as lead guitarist in the Beatles and as a talented songwriter, we know, you know, he, he was obviously gifted in that respect in a lot of ways, but we don't really hear much talk about what he did to innovate with the instrument at all, which is what Clapton is suggesting here, which is just a lovely thing to hear. Yeah, definitely. I think um, you, you hear a lot about George being quite exacting on the guitar. So like he, mm. he's by his own admission, he wasn't a very spontaneous guitar player and he wasn't really good at sort of improvising uh, or, or jamming particularly um, but what he could do was come up with something that didn't sound like anything anyone else would do mm. as long as you gave him enough time to spend on it you know yeah and um, you know I think that's quite interesting in fact there was a there was an article written by Johnny Marr about how George was a really innovative guitarist that was being shared around the internet a couple of weeks ago but yeah I mean I it, it, as a very basic guitarist myself I, um, when I was learning guitar, I, you know, and I was mainly just playing chords and stuff. I was never very good at playing solos, but a lot of George's stuff was really just beyond me mm. and kind of still is now. So, I mean, I'm thinking of things like, like the, the guitar arrangement for Till There Was You, um, yeah. and that acoustic guitar solo he does in that, it, it, it just blows my mind for the fact, because if you listen to the original Till There Was You, mm. absolutely none of that is in it. Yeah, yeah, it. no, yeah. That is all yeah. their arrangement.
it singing No, I never heard it at all Till there was you He, at the age of you know twenty one or whatever it was at the time, probably younger, did that is just mm. nuts to me. You know? I, I think the um, for me it's it's you know obviously the the dedication that he took to learn the sitar, which is obviously a hugely complicated instrument to, to learn. And um, what I found interesting in his documentary was you know him talking about getting to the point where he realised he was never going to be as good as other sitar players. But Ravi Shankar helped him sort of rediscover writing pop again or playing pop songs again. Yeah. Um, and it's around that time where he seemed to swap the discipline for sitar for the discipline for slide guitar. Mm. And, um, and someone makes the point, I forget who, someone makes the point in this documentary that he's got such a lovely, delicate, light touch with slide guitar. Mm. And when I heard that, I was like, yeah, that's so true. Because actually, that is a that's a hard technique to learn. But actually, he plays it very, very naturally in a very sort of light and fluid way. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really, really nice sound. I think Ringo talks it up a lot in the, in this film um, about how nice it is to hear him play slide guitar. But it's so true. He's he's absolutely fantastic when he when he is playing it in that style. Yeah, that's true. I think um, yeah, if you think about you know the slide on, uh, give me love, give me peace on earth. Know, that kind of thing that's really nice and delicate mm. isn't it yeah i can i can think of that particularly um, just being able to pull out these like sort of nice sort of solo melody lines and stuff but on a on a slide guitar in a way that's not like sort of you know heavy-handed and, and raspy which sometimes slide guitar can sound you yes, know he's true. he's he's really um quite um specific with, with those melody lines yeah um but the other obviously the big part as well um, that we should talk about while we're talking about Clapton is kind of stole George's missus. Yeah. <laughs> we should yeah, probably mention yeah. that. Because the interesting thing about that is two very, very different stories put forward about how that happened. Right. So I, I think, I, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, forgive me to paraphrase, but um, there is an excerpt, I think it's from Patty Boyd's audio reading of her autobiography. It feels like that rather than a new interview. Yeah, because she's not, Filmed, is she? No. You only hear her voice, yeah. Over footage, but she talks about how um, Eric obviously sort of made it clear to her that he had feelings for her. She went to a club uh, later that night and bumped into to Clapton there, and then George turned up and was really irate. I think she even says furious, furious about the situation and demanded that she leave with him or, or you know, stay with Clapton, and, and she left with George. Clapton gives a very, very different view, which is basically that I think he says that George is quite pragmatic about it. Oh, no, I think he says he was quite cavalier. Right. That was the phrase he used. He was quite cavalier about about the, the arrangement and seemed very positive in total. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's just interesting. You've got these two sides of the story. And, and I guess there probably isn't any other way of setting that record straight that the film can... Can choose, right? They'd... No, other than so, it does show a press conference in which 
someone is saying to him, so like your mate is now with your ex-wife and George is like, yeah, 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 yeah. fine. He's like, well, aren't you angry about that? And she says, no, I don't, no, I'd rather she was with him than with some dope, you know. Yes, that's right, yeah. Um, and he also brilliantly turns that into an excuse to promote the album. Because he turns around and says, "You want to know what's going on with me? Like, listen to the album. It's literally it's all there. There's a song in there called Sad or something. You know, <laughs> there's like... a song in there called My Wife Left Me for My Best Friend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I always remember hearing uh, that, that <laughs> I remember it's almost it's certainly apocryphal tale that the, that the two of them had like a guitar duel for for her hand. You know." Like right, you know, like it's until sunrise, you know, right. like uh, Clapton playing a fifteen-minute guitar solo and George <laughs> breaking out raunchy. <laughs> yeah, or George just going, "All right, just give me fifteen minutes to yeah. work this out." Yeah, but it's exactly. going to knock your socks off, mate. Honestly, <laughs> opens this is a car case. <laughs> Clapton's like shit. <laughs> no, I, I think yes. Yeah, so, I mean, them talking about that at all uh, in the documentary is really interesting. Because it, it's funny that it, it is generally well known that in the 60s there was lots of sort of uh, swinging going on, lots of free love, that kind of thing. And in Beatles documentaries, you don't hear that much about that specifically. Mm. Like, you know that was going on. So you think about, you know, we know a lot about how when Paul was with Jane Asher, he was also kind of going out with Francie Swartz at the mm. time. There's like someone else as well, you know, and they're... And, and, and there was a lot of that stuff going on, right? So, I mean, this film hints at that a bit, again, with, you know, what Paul said about, you know, oh, well, you know, George was a, a guy, you know, you, you know, we know what that means. But with Clapton, like, in this interview about him and Patty, he says, so he kind of hints like, okay, yeah, but I mean, you know, th- there'd been some, there was a lot of swapping going on, what mm. he says. He said, you know, and he he says pretty explicitly like um you know so already already they've been situations where we said yeah let's swap which kind of you know suggests that uh yeah it was ba- basically just wife swapping had gone on before that you know? yes yeah, yeah and so i <laughs> i always feel with sort of beatles documentaries that there there's gonna come a time <laughs> you know like is is Mark Lewis and going to going to document? You know, is Mark Lewis and got a big spreadsheet of every every woman, tryst. every woman that the Beatles ever slept with, and on which yeah. dates and in which positions? You know, and like, <laughs> I mean, if he's not working on that right now, then his time is absolutely wasted. <laughs> I mean, you're you're right because I yeah, you know, there's there's. There's a point at which discussing all of this starts to feel a little bit unseemly because it's not really important in the grand scheme of things. Mm. But uh, whenever I hear the story about uh, Eric Clapton, quote unquote, stealing George's wife, there tends to be someone in that conversation who makes the counterpoint uh, of, well, George also slept with Ringo's wife, Maureen. Right. Uh, which Ringo wasn't wasn't very happy about. No, I, I um, would imagine not. No. And... I guess there's no reason to mention that in this film, apart from the fact that that as a counter-argument does actually lend some context to to this kind of story. Yeah. You know, and I almost... I, I'm a bit, I, think, I guess I'm a little bit undecided as to whether or not I feel like that's a bit of an omission of the film. Yeah. To, to have not at least at some point referenced. Uh, so again, it, you know, it's, it's interesting to note that this, this being a Scorsese film 
is probably the one that is um, <laughs> the most, not that it's sort of sexually explicit, but it gets closer to talking about the Beatles and sex yeah. much more than any film ever has. Mm. You know, it, and like Beatles anthology, there's none of that. Oh, yeah, know? sure. So, I mean, I think there's a bit of, so in, in the anthology, Paul hints at in the Hamburg years, like, you know, at the time when we were around, it was only really sex workers and strippers, you know, so like, you know, we never had a lot of sex before. So like, you know, that was quite an eye opener is the phrase he uses. And it's, you know, slightly suggestive. And that's kind of it. You know? This this film also has, uh, I think, one of my favourite lines uh, about the Beatles that I've ever heard in any documentary, which is Ringo saying there was a, a saying at the time that, it, during a month, the Beatles had one day off, and on that day off, Paul always judged a beauty pageant, <laughs> <laughs> which is just incredible. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I think he he um he prefaces that by saying um it was like their fame was really good because it meant that we you know we could we could do a lot of shopping and and laughing right and it's yeah. like we know what you mean by shopping. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, I think you know this this film is discussing that stuff a lot more than documentaries ever have done before, and I you know I. I don't think that we're ever going to get any, you know, Apple sanctioned product <laughs> where they talk frankly about the amount of um, sex they were having in the 60s, which must have been an enormous amount of sex. Yeah. You know, there's, there's no getting around the fact that they were doing all right for themselves in general. You know, <laughs> And it, it, this film is kind of kind of discussing that. Yeah. Bit. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's actually not. But, but, but not yeah, quite, right. you know. And uh, yeah, I want I want to I want to know more. I want to know more about it. I want to know all of the sex. <laughs> On that note, I <laughs> uh, hope you've enjoyed us talking about George Harrison living in the material world and um, all of the sex that he's had. <laughs> if you've seen this film and uh, you have any opinions of the movie of um, Scorsese's approach to George Harrison's life or George Harrison himself, and any of the things that we've discussed about him, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on all the usual social media platforms, at Beatles Films Pod. And uh, if you've enjoyed listening to this episode at all, or any of our episodes, or even are just pleased that we're back with a new season uh, of new films to discuss, then you can also leave us a five-star rating or review on your podcast listening platform of choice. Otherwise, we'll see you again, hopefully with less sex talk, uh, next week with a new episode and we'll see you then thanks for listening and bye 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 cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 